In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to a very, very special episode of Pawn Order. Peter Sankoff here with my co-host. Camille Labchuk. Hi, everybody. We are coming to you live from Edmonton today. Well, not really live because we're recording it and you're going to listen later, but we're actually recording in a really cool bakery called Sweet Pea. Sweet Pea, one of our big sponsors for the holiday party that we're going to be talking a lot about in the very near future. But let me say first and foremost, it is a very special pawn order because I'm here with my co-host, Camille Lapchuk, which happens uh, once in a blue moon, correct? Yeah, yeah. Not uh, Actually, not uncommon these days. I feel like we've been seeing a lot of each other, Peter, but this is pretty cool because we're in Edmonton and we just had this amazing party last night. And we're actually eating a bunch of really delicious food as we talk to you. So if you hear us like smacking, that's why. Like this is the livest of live. Like I feel like this is pawn order. It's like we should call this pawn order raw. Like oh, it's yeah. like this is the real pawn order. It's like we're sitting here. I'm having a coffee. I got a smoothie. There's like people here and there, and it's just like this is the essence of pawn order. Yeah, there's food in front of us. There's like a bunch of kids hanging around. Peter's wife Gaze is sitting across from us. Producer Shannon Milling is a kitty corner at the same table. So it's. It's going to be a good episode. <laughs> it's going to be something. I'm certainly going to be enjoying it because I'm having, this is, a, I think this is the first pawn order where I have a coffee, a smoothie, and a cinnamon bun right in front of me. And you're getting all this ambient sound as like, uh, as like the cafe continues what it's doing. And the best part of the ambient sound, Camille, I have to tell you, the best part of the ambient sound is that every time the ambient sound ratchets up a little bit, I can see our producer Shannon Milling's face start to go into a grimace as she worries about the sound quality of the episode. And it's fabulous. It's like we're torturing her right in person. It's going to be super, super fun. <laughs> okay. We got some good stuff for you on this episode of Pawn Order. We're very excited. And uh, we're going to start by talking, of course, it is holiday party season. And we just finished up the first ever Edmonton holiday party and uh, Camille and Shannon came in special for it. It was a very exciting moment for us and uh, yeah, that's what we want to talk about first. Yeah, well first of all, thank you to you Peter for taking the initiative to get this event going and uh, thanks to your law colleague Dino Batos who hosted it at his firm downtown Edmonton. That was a great venue. And we had some incredible sponsors as well. It was, it was absolutely fabulous. I mean, I want to talk about all the sponsors and First and foremost, uh, it was just fantastic to be surrounded by so many Edmonton animal justice supporters uh, who came out and uh, it was a 
real mixture of the legal community, uh, advocates in Edmonton, uh, a lot of law student support. We got a really shout out to the Animal Justice uh, Club at the University of Alberta who supported us with some, they really helped, uh, really shout out to everybody because they helped, they clean up, they set up and and just made the whole thing happen. And it was uh, it was really, it was just, it was it was great to be surrounded by people who care about animals and, uh, and, and, and I, I should say, it's especially special that uh, Edmonton got to do the world premiere of the Animal Justice year-end video, and that is definitely a first. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. So this is a video that we produce every single year-end, just summarizing all the cool stuff that happened in the last 12 months. Uh, so we got the final version of it done yesterday, just before the party, screened it, everyone loved it. If you're listening, you may be able to watch it soon, probably not yet, but we're airing it at a few other holiday parties first. So watch for it on our YouTube channel, it will be up on Facebook as well. If you're on the email list, you'll get a, a version of it sent to you. Yeah, it was an incredible video, we got to see it, and uh, it was incredible. We should, again, there's so many shout-outs, this is going to be an episode full of shout-outs, but I mean, uh, Kim Carroll from Animal Justice, and I can't remember, who, who's the producer again Camilla you know better than I do <coughs> Kimberly produced it but um, a great guy named Mark was the editor uh, we all played a role in pulling it together but I, I didn't. I did absolutely nothing. I just showed up and watched it. That was great. But um, I, 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 it was it was great. And when you're listening to this, uh, keep an eye out. The, the best way to watch it is at one of the holiday parties. If you're in Toronto and Ottawa, it will be sent. And then usually after the last holiday party, it gets put online. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So sometime mid-December, you'll be able to see it online. And it'll definitely be emailed out to everyone, too. All right, Camille. Now to put you on the spot, what was your favorite moment to the holiday party if you can just pick one just pick one okay well I guess for me it's not so much a moment as just sort of a interesting fact it's really cool for me that we did a holiday party in Edmonton because this city has actually been ground zero for a lot of really amazing activism and especially animal law some of you listened to us talk about the Lucy the elephant court case before it was one of the seminal animal law court cases ever decided in this country. Uh, Chief Justice Catherine Fraser of the Alberta Court of Appeal wrote an amazing dissent about the importance of protecting Lucy the elephant who's confined in the Edmonton Zoo, northernmost elephant in the world. And one of the activists who was responsible for bringing that suit and getting that really interesting ruling was at the party last night. And so I just find it really cool that we're able to participate in this community of people who are already doing great legal activism. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I How'd you like my speech, by the way, Camille? It was sort of tracing the my own personal history and, and, and where we've come and sort of talking about the organization and how it's grown and how important that is sort of, you know, drawing together animal law and making it a force in Canada. Yeah, and we've talked on this podcast before about how this marks 10 years for animal justice. Uh, most of you know that we had a gala in the spring. Some of you were there. And... Uh, when you compare the state of the country, and this is not specific to the work that we do at Animal Justice, but in general, the state of animal law now versus where it was a decade ago, it's just astronomically advanced since then, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. It was incredible. And we've talked a few about, uh, a little bit about um, some of the sponsors um, of our event, and we'd be remiss if we did not, of course, mention that one of our sponsors who is there is also the sponsor of this podcast. So we'd like to uh, do a special shout out to our amazing friends at the Grinning Goat uh, website and of course Storefront in Calgary who is the sponsor of this podcast. And we would remind everybody about the amazing things that there are to buy at the Grinning Goat. And of course, if you do shop at the Grinning Goat, and I'm, I'm speaking to you, 
Rebecca Bretter. I am speaking specifically to you and everybody else. If you shop at The Grinning Goat, remember, you get a 15% discount if you use the Pawn Order sponsor uh, code, which is PAW15. Is that right, Camille? That's right, PAW15, 15% off. The Grinning Goat ships Canada-wide. Uh, free shipping over $100. I already have two pairs of boots from The Grinning Goat. I also bought this cool shampoo that's like a bar form and also conditioner that's like a bar form, and they come in little metal tins. That's something you can buy there. Uh, you can like travel with that really easily. I'm on the road like almost half the time these days. So it's better than trying to carry liquids on the plane. So check that stuff out, you guys. So we have heard, we actually got an update from our friends at the Grin and Goat. Crystal, uh, hello, Crystal, how are you? Um, this is, uh, we heard from them yesterday that they've had a few purchase orders from the pawn order code and um on one hand i was like yes and then on the other hand i was like our listeners camille are letting us down a few purchase orders yeah we, we need we, more we told you people like this is the best way that you can support the podcast and you know we ask so little of you and just you know this fantastic entertainment here from sweet pea cafe um i really hope you will support us and support the grinning goat we really really appreciate it yeah so thank you to our sponsor for being there shout out to crystal and katie and uh thank you to everyone else who contributed we had some great cheese i did not know peter that there was so much local cashew cheese in edmonton but that was amazing i didn't know that either and i live here um the food was was pretty incredible and and really the the just the the vibrant spirit of everybody there was great we 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 finally had to close it down at a certain point it was just the party was sort of going on into the night and we were all exhausted because we'd been planning for it all day and have to uh come back here and and get ready for the next round so it was really uh it was just a, a really special day all around and i'm glad to be a part of it and i'm so glad camille that you were here to be a part of it as am i as am i it's always a delight and today we are off to holiday party number two which is uh over in vancouver we are literally recording this as we are about a half hour away from getting onto a, a, a an uber to get onto a plane to fly to vancouver where we will be catching up with the uh, animal justice uh superheroine anna pippas that's right that's right and uh, her husband arden Beddoes, who does a lot of cases for us and lots of really cool people in vancouver probably some of you since this is going to be posted after the party will have already been at the party and celebrated with us so that's great i was about to say come up and tell us you listen to Pawn Order, but that's idiotic since do, do, they won't do hear this anyway, until after. Some other time. Yeah, but you know, there's yeah. no time machine here, Camille. It's not going to work. Not. Yeah. All right. Well, that is the holiday party season. I'm very excited about it. I know Camille's very excited about it. Shannon, are you excited about it? Oh yeah. Okay. And my wife Geza is here. She does not like being on the podcast, but are you excited about it all? She is thrilled. She's Fantastic. Thrilled. I think that's the. First time I've managed to get her on any recording, so that's 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 a treat in itself. Okay, okay. let's get into our uh, news section. We do have some really big news. Uh, I have to say, um, I think we will start with the first story, which is the first big story. You know how I know this is a big story? I'm going to tell you what actually happened. This is some inside pawn order. You really have to understand how this is. Yesterday, we are planning for a party. And I am running around getting things set up, right? And Shannon is busy working as she does, getting the AV set up. And my wife Geza is helping with the setup. Victoria, who you're gonna hear about later, don't worry, Victoria, we have not forgotten you, um, is, is, is getting everything set up. Camille is sitting in my office 
<laughs> watching her phone as she's following the story we're about to talk about. So first of all, Camille, thanks for all your help with the setup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime, anytime. You just, you know, keeping an eye on everything in Parliament, that's all. All right, guys, the story is really cool. So yesterday was the first hour of debate on Bill S-203, which bans whale and dolphin captivity right across the country. We talked about this extensively on the podcast before. And I know a lot of you have been following it because it is really, truly a big deal. But the first hour of debate in the House of Commons is a really important uh, time for a couple of reasons. The main reason being that it's the first chance that we have to hear what the government's position on any private member's bill is going to be. So just recall, this is a private member's bill from the Senate. And it passed through the Senate finally just uh, about a month ago after much, much deadlock and delay by pro-aquarium senators who don't want to see whales liberated from captivity. Finally, it got to the House of Commons. Green Party leader Elizabeth May is sponsoring it. And the government had not taken a position on this bill previously. We thought they were pretty friendly to it and, and not opposed, but we didn't know. And what always happens at the first hour of debate on legislation is that the parliamentary secretary to the responsible minister stands up and gives the position. So that finally happened. Sean Casey, parliamentary secretary, did so uh, on behalf of the Liberals. And he was in support of it. Uh, pointed out that Canadians clearly, clearly want to see a ban on keeping these animals in tanks. They don't want to see them captured from the wild anymore. There was reference to breeding practices and the import of these animals from other jurisdictions and the cruelty involved with that. And overall, it was just stunning to see. I know I was following along, and as you noted, Peter, it really couldn't have been a worse time for me. She was literally following along. We're driving over to the event, and Camille's sitting there watching. I have my phone. headphones in on my phone. I'm trying to get the audio feed was, to come up on my phone. It was actually pretty hilarious. Um, but I understand what you're saying, and it was clearly a big moment. And, and, and I can say that because I can contrast it with the last time this happened, and I, I remember it quite vividly. And uh, when 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 uh, Nate's uh, Nate and Nathaniel Erskine Smith private members bill came up and we didn't know how the government was going to come down on it until Bill Blair spoke up in opposition to it and that essentially doomed the bill. That was crushing. That, yeah, it's, it's, and it's a really big deal. So when the government comes out in support, um, that's, that's just uh, incredible news. And we have talked about this bill before. I think this bill is important for a number of reasons and um, um, it, it, it really firms up with some of the other uh, language that's been uh, taken uh, with respect to these animal bills and I think it really suggests a change in attitude and by the way I want to make another point because this, this is a little bit off topic but I, I, I hate to do it Camille because again I do hate to do it but we're gonna give the government some kudos on a couple of fronts because I was watching that video yesterday and I don't want to give away our video because it was a wonderful thing but there is a speech um, in that video from the Minister of Justice, who I've been critical of for various criminal law reasons in the past, um, Justice uh, uh, Wilson, Wilson Raybo. Jody Raybould Wilson. Jody, Jody Raybould Wilson, I apologize. Um, Actually, maybe and, I have and, it wrong. And I'll tell you something um, um, that, that, that really impressed me and that I think is coming out with this bill as well. When they introduced the new provision banning bestiality in all forms, um, what, what impressed me was they could have done that and they could have taken a limit, 
a limited reason for doing it. They could have gone fallen back on what you know the BC Crown said in the case and said, we're doing this to prevent the exploitation of children. We are concerned about children who are witnessing these types of acts and focused on that aspect of it and said, for that reason, we need to exclude it. And again, if that sounds far-fetched to you when we're talking about a bill involving animals, I remind you, that is what the government argued, the BC government, in fairness, in the case of DLW, they said this law is not about animals, it's about protecting children from being part of these types of sexual acts. And again, there's no question that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that is a secondary reason. But I will give the government credit that when they had announced this bill, they went out and they said firmly that this is about protecting the abuse and exploitation of animals. So I will give some kudos to the government for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So we had a great position from the government. Uh, other MPs spoke in favor of it, too. So Elizabeth May, the sponsor in the House, had a brilliant speech. It was just absolutely beautiful about the, the importance of protecting these animals because of their sentience, because they swim vast distances in the wild, because they dive deeply. She spoke about the mother orca. We talked about this on the podcast before, but she gave birth her baby died and she carried her calf on her nose for 17 days through the ocean in apparent uh, grieving and mourning. And when you think about that, when you think about an animal who has the capacity to do that and then consider putting them in a tiny tank just so people can look at them, you know, it's really hard in 2018 to say that that is still okay. So Elizabeth pointed that out. Uh, Finn Donnelly from the NDP spoke in favor of it. He gave a brilliant speech. Uh, Julie DeBruzen, a Liberal MP from Toronto Danforth, gave a stunning uh, speech. Um, it was a beautiful moment. There were some great questions. Uh, there was a, a, less in, a, a less great moment, too, which we're going to get into shh, later. Shh, shh. For, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. Know. Wait till the end of the episode. To say that I am excited to get to our zero of the month is like I'm literally bouncing up and down. It's like, they, but we can't do that. Camille. That's no, later. we're, okay. we're going to save it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I agree with all that. And I've said um, before, and we've talked about this when we announced this bill in the first place. I am particularly excited by the language of this bill. I think it is a revolutionary moment for Canada, and I, I don't believe that we should look at this and say, well, it's just about whales and dolphins. Uh, I think the language of the bill and the way it talks about uh, um, um, certain actions having to be for the benefit of the animals is a, is a first in Canadian history and, and mirrors um, some of the more advanced legislation that's been put in place in other countries, and, and I think that's a really exciting part of it as well. Yeah, the bill talks about the best interests of cetaceans, as being a reason for uh, various things that could happen under the legislation. Very, very groundbreaking. So it was an incredible moment. I don't think, Peter, that I've ever heard such pro-animal rights language used before in Parliament. It really was stunning. We're going to post a link to that video. And, and I will say that that sort of stuff is important too. Um, those types of speeches are, you know, we cited some of those speeches in our in our our legal arguments in DLW, just talking about the way in which uh, parliamentarians are speaking differently about animals, and the more they speak um, in these ways, the more positive it is for everyone who gets to hear it and for advancing new arguments about animals down the road. So I think there's some really good stuff. And I didn't notice it, Camille. I don't want to, you know, cut off anything else you have to say about this before we pass to our next story. But did you notice that the three stories we're going to talk about in our news section are all thematically linked? Did you notice that? They're all about advancing uh, new ideas of animal rights for animals. These are not welfare stories. All three stories um, are tied by that idea of 
we are talking some groundbreaking stuff. That's pretty rare in and of itself. We're, there are no barn fires today. We're not talking about any no uh, individual new, cruelty cases. No welfare initiatives. We have three particular stories, and the first one is about rights for cetaceans. And maybe let's move to the second one, which is about rights or dignity or whatever you wish to call it about all animals. And that's a revolutionary new measure that was put in place by uh, this. It's the city, correct? The the city, city or state local province kind of administrative area of. Brussels. We're a little fuzzy on the details of, of, Belgium, Belgium. <laughs> of Belgium geography and politics. <laughs> but something is going on in Brussels, and that something is a uh, is a legislative recognition, uh, following on some that have taken place in other jurisdictions, but a very strong legislative recognition that animals are sentient beings and deserve to have their interests protected. That's right. So Brussels made this change. They amended their civil code, and I believe, although I've not read the text, but from the reporting, it seems like they have done exactly what places like France, like uh, Quebec have done, and recognize that animals aren't just objects, but that they are sentient beings. So yeah. again, this is happening around the world in a lot of different countries, and it's great to see one more jurisdiction jump on this. Yeah, very powerful stuff, hopefully with some legislative force. I actually thought the language was stronger than that of Quebec. Maybe that was just the way I read it. Um, I did look at it very quickly. We should, like, you know, apologize we're not a little bit more onto it, but like kind holiday parties, <laughs> holiday parties parties have kept us busy, but um, I did think the language was interesting, and it's something we're going to touch on. We have yet to do an episode um, really looking at these rights measures. We did obviously um, have Jessica Eisen on a little while ago, but I, I want to look at some of these these things and, and talk about uh, the ways in which they could be used to advance new interests for animals. But I. I think any type of legislative recognition that starts to talk about animals in a way other than just welfare, other than just property, and other than just being protected is, is some really interesting stuff. Very important symbolic recognition. So yeah, we should actually plan in the new year on doing an episode just on that, Peter. Let's do it. And finally, our last story of the day is uh, also about rights. And this one is, we, we did not get a chance to touch on uh, last day. This is the work of the Non-Human Rights Project in the U.S., who is, uh, we've talked about them in the past, and we've talked about their work in attempting to get um, um, uh, great apes uh, uh, launching various rights-based cases to uh, obtain specific rights for great apes. In particular, they want to get great apes, uh, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, um, out of captivity and into sanctuaries. And they're trying to do that, not by arguing any welfare-based thing, but s launching cases on behalf of the great apes themselves. But they've changed tack, Camille. Well, this time, <clears throat> so previously there were a number of cases involving chimpanzees. They've moved on to trying to assist elephants as well. And the latest elephant that they filed suit on behalf, there were a few in Connecticut previously, and those cases are still in various stages of working their way through courts. But this one in uh, New York State involves an elephant who is confined at the Bronx Zoo. And they have filed a case on her behalf, and a judge in New York State has issued a writ of habeas corpus, which requires uh, a show cause hearing. So that's where the individuals who are detaining the individual in question, in this case an elephant, must show up in court and prove to the court that they have the right to do so, prove that there's a valid reason for captivity. The interesting thing, of course, about this, Peter, is that the writ is traditionally used on behalf of humans who are uh, inappropriately imprisoned. In this case, they're trying it for an animal. Yeah, and it's uh, it's an interesting legal development. It's obviously patterns um, the way in which uh, they've done this with uh, the primates, like gorillas and uh, chimpanzees. And the writ of habeas corpus is an ancient writ, and it's essentially uh, based on a legal idea that the state has uh, no right to 
to wrongly detain a person. And the argument being raised by the uh, Non-Human Rights uh, Foundation is essentially that uh, they have no right to detain gorillas and chimpanzees because they are equivalent to persons. And um, what's interesting in this case, the legal development, is Normally, um, it's almost like a preliminary finding. The judge has to is, should not issue a writ of habeas corpus unless they are at least convinced that there is a person who is being detained. So, essentially, this does not determine the cause, let me be very clear, nor does it determine that the elephant is entitled to a writ of habeas corpus, but you can't get to that show cause hearing unless the judge is at least willing to accept that there is a credible case to be heard, and that's what this preliminary finding is. That's, that's a really big deal. They have previously had one of these hearings on behalf of two chimpanzees, uh, Hercules and Leo, I believe that's right. And uh, they did not win that. The judge seemed very sympathetic, but felt that her hands were tied by a higher court decision. But there have been some interesting developments since then. A more senior judge has made some really stunning comments about whether uh, he had previously decided that case rightly when he, when, he, when he did issue a decision on it. So I think that the Non-Human Rights Project is feeling very good about their chances going into this one. Uh, the cool thing about it for any listeners in the Toronto or Southern Ontario region is that it's actually going to be heard on December 14th, not very far away from you. It's just across the border, just across from Niagara Falls in upstate New York. Uh, we'll post a link to that in the show notes to this episode in case anyone is interested in making the drive down. I know a number of law students in Toronto definitely are, but it's obviously going to be uh, you know, quite a media circus. Uh, to forgive the non-vegan analogy, and uh, quite a lot of people there, I think, participating. So it could be cool. Awesome. All right, we are looking forward to that. We're going to get into our main segment, which is a special interview coming right about now. Okay, and for the main segment today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Angela Fernandez, who's a University of Toronto Faculty of Law professor and happens to have been my contracts prof in law school, but uh, more importantly these days is up to a number of really interesting things, including being an advisor with Animal Justice Canada. Uh, but more importantly, and what we're gonna talk about today is Angela's new book, Pearson and Post, The Hunt for the Fox. It deals with law and professionalization in American legal culture. So for all the non-lawyers out there, or if you need a refresher on this case, because it's been a while since you've been in law school, Pearson and Post is a, a really fascinating property law case that's frequently taught in Canadian and especially American law schools that deals with some interesting property concepts. And uh, for me, it was actually my, I think it was probably the first animal law case that I studied in law school, to the extent that we can really call it animal law, because as we'll get into, it's really a lot more about possession and property. But uh, the central sort of character and dispute in the case is a fox. So, um, so Angela, I want to get into the book in a minute. But um, first, uh, why don't you just tell me, uh, listeners a little bit about yourself and, and what you teach at U of T? Yes, yes, sure. Thanks so much, Camille, for doing this. Um, yeah, so so I teach, um, well, as Camille mentioned, contracts um, and also legal history. I do legal history seminars, and I'm a legal historian um, um, and uh, cross-appointed in the history department at U of T. And so I got interested in Pearson and Post really from a history perspective, not even really as someone who teaches property. 
So um, I heard about it at a legal history conference um, a number of years ago now, and it just seemed to me that there was something about the case. It had almost like a fable-like quality about it. So basically the facts are there is a guy, he's hunting a fox with his dogs, and a second guy intervenes, he's called the saucy intruder in the case, and takes the fox. Which one was Pearson and which one was Post? So Post is the original pursuer, okay. and Pearson is the saucy intruder. Okay. Um, so it goes to a local jury trial. So the case is from um, 1802 um, in Southampton on Long Island. It goes to a, a jury trial, and the jury gives 75 cents to Post, the original pursuer. And that sort of should have been it. Like it was, you know, a squabble between these two guys. Why they even bothered to go to their JP and do it? Um, one of the chapters of the book talks about the fact that Post's family is um, sort of like uh, up and coming wealth. And so he's putting on airs by like engaging in this sort of almost like an English style fox. And there's no horses, but mm-hmm. you know, he's got dogs. Um, and Pearson's family, they are farmers. Uh, although he's a teacher, but he that's the family interest and all the land around where this chase happened is all Pearson land. And because of the farming interest, he's going to see the fox as um, vermin and as a pest, going to eat chickens. I think he's also maybe aware um, that if English-style fox hunting comes to this part of Long Island and it does bring horses, they'll be trampling of fields and fences and that sort of thing. So it's really like two clashing views of the fox. You know, the fox is an object of um, recreational sport versus, like, the fox is, like, an object of... A pest. A pest, basically. Well, and the judgment is so interesting in the case. I mean, we'll talk about uh, not the jury trial, but the eventual judgment when it goes up to a higher court, but... I mean, the fox is referred to repeatedly as, like, basically the enemy of mankind and all these really derogatory terms. Like, the fox is hated. Yeah, absolutely. By one judge, at least. Yeah, absolutely. And that sort of seems to go without saying. It certainly goes without saying that, you know, um, one of these two individuals is going to be declared the owner of the fox. um, And there's no sense at all that, like... Well, maybe the fox isn't owned by anyone, or maybe, you know, he or she kind of owns themselves the way, you know, we sort of think about ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not, not at all. And, and if students are going to encounter it, they're going to encounter it in a property classroom. So it's already all presupposed that... Everyone assumes the fox is, is somebody's property. Exactly. We just have to exactly. decide who. We just have to decide as between these two people, you know? Yeah. And in fact... I was working on this case for a very long time before I ever thought there was anything wrong with that either. Mm. And it was actually one time when I was lecturing on the case, I was pretty deep into it at that point. It was in a colleague's property class, Lisa Austin, who also teaches at U of T. And there was a student in the room who put their hand up and said, but they're both going to kill it, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, one guy wanted the dogs to rip it up and the other guy, he, he didn't shoot it, but he, he clubs it with um, a piece of fence railing. Um, mm. And I think that was really the start of me thinking, oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is a problem. Um, and it's not normally going to be raised or talked about it, you know, unless there is a student who, and, you know, would be a pretty brave person who would put their hand up and kind of go, well, maybe this shouldn't be property at all in the, in the yeah. property class, you know? Yeah, no law student wants to say that in the first year of property exactly. law class because exactly. animals are obviously considered property. Yeah, exactly. But I suspect that, you know, this case has been taught for 200 years, you know, every fall in an American classrooms, you know, in the U.S. for sure, and to Canada, in Canada to a pretty great, good extent too. There's probably always people there who are having that thought and who are having that feeling. 
but who, you know, are not brave enough to put their hand up and do any questioning of that. Oh, I was probably one of them in hmm. first year, uh, first year property who, uh, I had Lisa Austin, who you just mentioned. Oh, you, yeah. Yeah, oh professor. yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think you yeah. guest lectured yeah. on it, but. Yeah. No, no. Cause I, I, I probably wasn't deep enough into it at that point. Right. But, right. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it definitely occurred to me that it's a fundamental issue that's messed up in this case is how the Fox's interests just aren't on the table or. Uh, aren't on the table in the judgment, which you can kind of understand because it's 200 years ago, yes, but not on the yes. table even in the but way that the case our, is taught. in our contemporary, yeah, exactly, exactly. So what, why don't you yeah. just explain what got you interested in, in doing all this research and what the process yeah. was like, because, you know, I'm, I've got the book here in front of me and it's, how many pages? Oh, 360 some pages yes. of like pretty yes. intense legal <laughs> research. Yeah. Uh, you went to the archives in New York, you dug up all this stuff that nobody had ever seen yeah. before. Well, what motivated you to do that? Well, I mean, really, um, one of the areas that I, I, I've been exploring, actually, it goes all the way back to when I was in law school. The first paper I ever wrote in law school was about this kind of thing. It's called legal archaeology. And basically the idea is you focus on a case, often a famous case, like a chestnut case or something that's really central to the canon, taught in the classrooms frequently, and you dig around and try to find more information about it. So either the litigants or where it happened or the judges who decide on it. And there's a legal historian named Brian Simpson who um, was really the person who founded this field, kind of like in the 1980s and 1990s. So when I went to law school, um, I guess it, well, it was like 1996, I um, learned about his work through my contracts professor, actually, who was a legal historian. Oh, and we were um, we we got assigned this 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 um, this task, which was to pick a case from one of our classes and write a paper about it. So I picked a case that Brian Simpson had done one of these studies on, and I just, you know, kind of like summarized what was happening. And But that was my introduction to the, that type of legal mm. historical research. And I was like, oh, this is really fun, actually, because these are cases that, you know, people know and you can talk about. And, you know, it's sort of one of those things like if you're at a cocktail party and you start talking to another person who's gone to law school or who's a lawyer, and you just say the name of the case, like you say, I don't know, Hadley and Baxendale or something. And you both know, oh, you're going to have a conversation now about remoteness. <laughs> you just, like, that's just like, that's just, Hadley Baxendale just means remoteness, you know? Yeah, so just I, one of the leading cases on a particular doctrine. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is this kind of weird, quirky thing about lawyers and law and the way that it's um, produced and reproduced over time, that we use the cases in this kind of way. And I thought, um, yeah, I would like, maybe like to do this. And I did at one point do it on a rather obscure case. Um, that, you know, it was kind of interesting and whatever. But I, I thought, you know what? I think you really have to do it with a case that's more well-known. I guess if you want people to actually read and appreciate your and work, that helps. Exactly. <laughs> and they care about it, and then they want to, you know, learn more about it, right? So that's sort of where it started. Mm. And um, and Pearson was one that people had tried to do lots of stuff on. When I first learned about it, it was at a legal history conference when I was um, first, first started teaching. I think it was in my second or maybe my third year of teaching and I almost got the feeling that it had been like made up or something like I, I felt like I wasn't sure it had actually happened and the reason why I thought this was that the appellate decision which is so after the jury trial it ended up going to the New York Supreme Court and the lawyers really like bring in all these old learned authorities about how do you establish possession in a wild animal because it's such kind of chestnut problem that goes way back and 
they really kind of puff it up and blow it out of proportion for 75 cent. Lawyers like to do that. <laughs> and lawyers definitely <laughs> like to do it. So it's sort of like, and that's why the picture is like the eagle, like grabbing the fox and making off of it. Cause it's sort of about the way that professionalization just kind of cashed in on this dispute people's problems yeah yeah and and then kind of like hijacks it well and for all Um, you listeners out there who are wondering what the eagle is well well, i'll post a link to the book obviously in the show notes and you can see the cover of it is this enormous sort of black eagle um carrying off a poor little fox yeah and you'd think actually that that fox is done for but the storybook that i found it in um this book series called forgotten books um (laughs) which he actually survives that incident oh Um, good yeah (laughs) glad for the fox yeah it's good but um yeah so so yeah so there had been this appellate decision but there was no um there was no record of the lower court level and and just backing up for a sec, what was the appellate decision, just so our listeners sort of understand what yes, the ultimate result was? The ultimate result, yes. So basically what happened in the appellate decision was um, they reversed the finding of the jury, and they said that um, the um, the person who had established best possession or occupation of the animal was the intruder, was Pearson. And Pearson was the one who had appealed because he had lost at the earlier level. At the jury. Exactly. And so the majority decision held... Um, you know, it, it had held for Pearson. And that ended up being um, interpreted in the common law as a precedent um, for what they call the capture rule. And it's this idea that it's better to have the property ownership follow the most sort of secure or complete act. Right. So what was wrong with what Post was doing was that he was just pursuing. He hadn't actually completed the pursuit and so the fox might get away right right so the cleaner and over time that came to be you know when especially when law and economics kind of got a hold of the case in the 80s they really turned it into a kind of classic example of bright line rules versus fuzzy standards and that is kind of the standard way in which the case is understood especially in the u.s Mm -hmm. is in this very um kind of like um you know really pared down instrumental sort of way Mm. capture rules better capture rules clearer I kind of came to this feeling like, well, I don't know, capture role, like, like, you know, you're pursuing and it's reasonable pursuit. And it turned out once I looked into it, there were actually lots of other authorities on the other side, including some Canadian cases on the other side. Okay. And so when I first used to talk about this at American conferences, people would be like, well, obviously the capture role is the better rule. And I'd be like, well, no, that's actually not obvious. And, you know, it's just because you've received it a certain way that you see it a certain way. And that's what sort of got me onto the path of saying, yeah, you know, it is this very known and familiar kind of legal artifact, but could we see it differently? Could mm. we redescribe it and re-understand it? And really kind of ultimately, perhaps from an animal perspective, re-employ it to, you know, shift a conversation about um, the animal as object to um, a conversation about the animal as subject. Right. And bringing the animal's interest into the yeah. case. And that's sort of what started to happen to me as I was writing it. It was a pretty gradual thing, but, you know, I was working on it for over 10 years. So, you know, at a certain point, I um, I felt like I couldn't ignore that. And the professionalization that I was tracing, the way that the lawyers got a hold of it, um, that's, you know, sort of the first half of the book is the original local context. The second half is how, you know, legal academics got a hold of it um, and brought it into the treatises and then from the treatises into the case books and then into the classrooms. And, you know, that's that's really like a kind of over 200-year history. Mm. Um, and so it seemed to me that everybody was basically profiting 
from the death of this animal in one way or another. And I was feeling like I'm, I am too, like here I am, I'm still making hay with it. And, um, and it started to bother me, especially after I was having experiences like what happened with the student in Lisa's class. I was like, yeah, you know what? She's right. And I have to figure out how to bring that perspective in to some extent. Um, and the timing was, was kind of serendipitous, but, but I happened to meet a woman who was teaching in the history department, who was working on a book on pet keeping in 19th century Britain. Hmm. We were at a women's conference, a legal, legal history, um, planning conference together. And, uh, I said, Oh my God, that's so funny. I'm working on a fox hunting case from 19th, early 19th century New York. And she's like, wow, really? And I was like, Oh, we should have lunch and we should, you know, talk about our, our projects. And, and anyway, so that's what we did. And we ended up. Um, finding out that the Jackman Humanities Institute had this little pot of money that they would give to people who would set up interdisciplinary groups at U of T working in different departments. And I was like, this is Sarah Amato. And I was like, okay, well, Sarah's in history. I'm in law. Let's find people who are working on projects that have something to do with animals. And so we started the work. That's when the working group started. All right. So the working group, uh, any listeners who have not been to the working group or aware of it, for, I don't know, since what, 2013, 2014? Uh, yeah. Yeah, something like that. Probably five years. Yeah, it's been a really uh, really exciting and stimulating way for academics and lawyers and other people just to get together in Toronto um, at a facility hosted by U of T, this is the Jackman yeah. Humanities Institute, and talk about works in progress people are working on, talk about um, court cases. I went and spoke about the court case that Peter and I did, the Supreme Court case at one point. Oh, the speciality, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just been tons of interesting academics come in there through the years. So uh, what's so interesting to me, Angela, is how this book really got you down that path. And it was considering the fox in this particular case who died over 200 years ago that kind of brought you over to you know, being more interested academically and personally in animal issues. Yeah, exactly. And it was a very much a sideways movement, and it was very much a like an unpredictable thing. It's not like you would have thought, oh, well, this is what's going to happen. It really, you know. Yeah, it's funny. Of... Like I went to law school to be an animal rights lawyer. A lot of people do that these days, and you just kind of came into it through this other through this project. Other, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and I had to learn so much about fox hunting, and I had to, you know, I really got into that whole. Uh, you know all that literature and I just thought you know something is not um, sitting right with me and you know an aspect of the case um, which we haven't talked about yet is the way that the dissent is written in this jocular witty kind of way mm, so, right so the so, majority says that first possession is the rule whoever captures the fox first gets the fox and the dissenting judge what was his name uh, Brockholst Livingston what a name Brockholston Brockholst <laughs> Yeah, B-R-O-C-K-H-O-L-S-T. Wow. Yeah. I don't think anyone names their kids Brockholster. <laughs> Sorry if there's any Brockholster out there. It's a great name. <laughs> but but so, so oh, the yeah, descent. Right. Yeah, so the descent. Um, yeah, so it's written yeah, in this very jocular tone, which I actually think is part of the reason why the case has kind of stayed around all this time. It's had such staying power. is because it's a great read. It's entertaining. It's And it's very entertaining. And to teach it and to, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's fun. And, and what does he um, say in his dissent? What is his issue with the majority's reasons? Well, you know, it's very convoluted, but he's basically trying to say, you know, reasonable pursuit. It's hot. It's also called hot pursuit that that should be enough. And the, well, the majority says it's it's impolite, but it's not illegal. Mm-hmm. He's basically saying, no, it should be enough to establish that you've got this, you've got a secure enough hold. 
Um, and there's things in The Descent that don't make a lot of sense. And, yeah, it and seems I, like I he's just kind of toothing his own horn. Well, and... that's it. And the original person who I, 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 I saw presenting on this, her name's Andrea McDowell. She was talking about The Descent, and she was trying to kind of make sense of it and figure it out. And I think it was actually reading her work and, and talking to her about it that I sort of came to the conclusion that that was a futile endeavor, hmm. that that was not what was going on here. It was not your typical rational, logical, legal analysis. The guy was basically just having a good time. He's just, just writing. enjoying writing a ridiculous decision. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, and in the book, I talk a little bit about the way that, you know, law reports were not regularly published in those days. So there is a chance that when he wrote that, he actually didn't mean it for be, to be for public circulation, that it could have been kind of like a lawyerly camaraderie inside joke yes exactly and one of the chapters is actually about this 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 thing that lawyers have done as far probably back as there's been lawyers which is engage in these um sometimes they're called courts of dover they're basically like fraternal clubs where mooting of legal problems goes on Hmm. and so i think there's you know a, a very real sense in which those lawyers and they were up and coming um and so the counsel who represented pearson and post exactly that they the pf especially pearson's lawyer um who was doing who's responsible for the appeal uh that they were you know almost doing that kind of play like that lawyerly play almost like what we do with moot courts now you get a problem you know both sides go at it and then you know it's it but there's a, a kind of a a game kind of feel to it. So so in the book, I call this legal solemn foolery. And I have a whole chapter where I trace other instances of it. Um, what I noticed once I started to kind of follow this, this thread was that it seemed to me that this was often happening with animals. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That because I think it was just, you know, animals, we assume they're, you know, legally, morally, economically insignificant. And especially, you know, this Fox 75 cents. Well, you know, they don't matter and so it's okay to have fun and to make light and you know and still I think to to you know kind of laugh when um when um we're talking about this oh it happens still today I mean the the example that comes to my mind most prominently which I'm sort of glad to have an entree point into that issue because it relates to the book and to the Pearson and Post case uh, is the Ikea monkey. Remember how hilarious yes, people yes, found yes, that when exactly. there was this poor yeah. monkey wandering around yeah. by himself in an Ikea yeah. parking lot? Yeah, and similarly, like if he hadn't been wearing that little shearling coat, yeah. you know, it, it, we probably you know wouldn't have heard as much about him. Right. Yeah, that's right. The coat really made it. And then, like, I get it. It was, it was like, what the heck is going on? It's kind of, you know, entertaining and, and really out there. Uh, but really divorced from the context of what the monkey's going through. Exactly. How terrified exactly. he must be to be in the winter by himself in a parking lot without knowing anyone and then wandering into um, Ikea. Um, yeah. But the reason I'm glad to have a chance to bring up the Ikea monkey case is because yeah. I, I see it as uh, a case where this this, uh, this sort of first possession, not so much the first possession rule, but the, the idea that capturing an animal that's wild by nature mm-hmm. entitles you to possession of that animal, and that once that animal's released back into the wild, the animal's fair game again for someone for else someone to come to along. Recapture. Yes. Exactly. Yes. yes. Which is, there was a court case involving the Ikea monkey, um, who had been sent to a sanctuary after Toronto Animal Services seized the monkey because he was not supposed to be kept in the city of Toronto. And his former owner, uh, who now has a private menagerie with many, many monkeys. She sued to get him back. And what happened in that case is 
the, the court essentially said that because he had escaped, he was no longer her property. He reverted to not being her property the second that he was, mm-hmm. again, wilded back to nature. Yeah. Yeah. And whoever captured him at that point had possession and ownership. Right. Yes, yes. And, and you know, in reading that case, in fact, in one of the working group sessions, we read it, um, and the non-lawyer people in the group, which is, that was so, 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 it's so good about the group, right? Because you have these lawyer people who are seeing things, you know, the way we're trained to see them, and then you have other people who are like, what? <laughs> it really broadens everyone's perspective. Exactly. And one of the people, she, you know, she was like, are all legal judgments written like this? Because that judgment is so convoluted. I mean, I, my take on it is that I think that the judge was basically trying to do the right thing, which was, you know, have that, have Darwin be a, a place where it was appropriate monkey place for him to be. But, you know, she didn't want to use like the best interests of the animal because that mm-hmm. would be too, too revolutionary. Exactly. Too persony and not, pro- you know, too much like person and not enough like property. So she did the wild animal analysis. But I mean, really like, you know, for a domesticated animal that's owned, do you even characterize him as a wild animal? I mean, it just, just seems like that doesn't make a lot of sense. And is he wild to the Scarborough parking lot? No, he's not <laughs> in his he's not in his indigenous context, right? Like or his, you know. Um and I think actually somebody um else has written about this in the Peter and um Katie and Vaughn's book and sort of saying the same thing, like really it should be um, right, and there is a, a chapter in the, it's the Canadian Perspectives on Animals and the Law, edited by my co-host Peter Zankoff with Katie Sykes and Von Black, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes too, in case you want to order it. Yes, yes, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. Yeah, so so I think that wild domestic distinction it gets used sort of instrumentally like that, sometimes in weird ways to achieve results that you think if it, you know. We could, you know, are we moving toward a point where it wouldn't be like so unthinkable to say, oh, well, actually, this is more of a personhood like, not like a human being, but a personhood, if as terms of the legal analysis goes, you know, we should be using that lens as opposed to the property lens. Well, and this is a good segue into some of your other work because you've been working on uh, personhood versus property issues and analyzing some of the constructs that go into that. Uh, why don't you just fill us in a little bit on that? I know you yeah. you spoke about this and presented the paper at, at Oxford Summer School this this summer where I was as well. Yeah, yeah. So that so that work is basically um, what I'm trying to do there is say I don't think that either property or um, personhood really is char- capturing or characterizing um, you know what what we're, what we're talking about when we're talking about non-human animals, and so maybe we should be using an idea of quasi property or quasi personhood to sort of at least embed in the term that. They, you know, we're acknowledging this is not sentient property is not like other types of property, and you know we might not yet be at the point where people are feeling comfortable and okay enough with um, using personhood. Even though you know Steve Wise's work shows, you know you're not trying to say these non-human animals are the same as human beings. When people hear person, they think you mean human beings. So that totally that's very difficult. It's a barrier. It really is. And so 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 you know what I'm suggesting is something that I don't think, you know, is the permanent place where we should be in this, but maybe as a kind of a temporary heuristic to or bridging the gap kind of a concept to think of it in quasi terms because I actually think it does describe where we are currently at in terms of the law. You know, there's all this stuff about, you know, um, for pets that they're not like the rest of property. They're not um, like the dinner plates when you're getting a divorce and exactly. pet custody issues arrive. They're not like exactly. mm, and couch. S- yeah, and sentience has made so much headway in different jurisdictions and different pieces of legislation and documents and cases. And So I feel like that idea 
you know, of sentient property being different than property that's pretty there. And then Wise is working on the personhood stuff from the other end. So I, th- I think I think we're we're, we're getting there, but um, I think there's still these like real conceptual barriers. Mm-hmm. And I think the language that we use matters. I mean, pe- I mean, people who are more abolitionists they think we'll just stop using property language altogether. And, you know, maybe that will eventually come. But I, my feeling is that in the interim, we need something that at least accurately characterizes what we're currently doing. It would um, be better to have a better way of conceptualizing it. I, I've always thought that um, the idea that property uh, can't have standing, which is essentially what personhood hopes to accomplish, is... I don't really think supported by the way that we consider property right now. I mean, corporations are the property of human beings, yet they do have standing to go to court. And there's some middle ground in some way that animals maybe could retain some sort of property status, but still have a bundle of rights. And and property is essentially a a bundle of rights in relation to some item. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there is already, like, if there are any rights, and there are because there's anti-cruelty statutes, then... Um, there is a, you know, there's a capacity to bear rights. And so that's some kind of legal personhood, um, you know, and it's not, you know, obviously this is terrible and it's not good enough, but, but that, but that's actually already there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I sort of think that our language should be acknowledging that, you know, um, and not conceding. Oh, well, you know, things either have to be property or they have to be persons. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. And that binary, it's a, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's too it's binary. A, it's a trap, the binary, I think. It is. Yeah, I mean, and for any listeners out there who are curious about this, you know, animals benefit from a lot of legal protections right now. So there's statutes that say, with respect to certain animals at least, that they must be provided with adequate food and water, adequate shelter, uh, veterinary care if they require it. And you could sort of say those are like small R rights, like in the sense that entitles an animal to a specific thing and specific treatment. But the problem they don't, the problem, the reason they don't really rise to the level of what I would say are capital R rights Mm -hmm. is that they have no enforcement mechanism. An animal can't go to court themselves and seek a remedy if they're not being provided with water. The owner, the human, could be prosecuted, but that's a different thing from the animal enforcing their rights. So when you think of that conceptually, it's not really a large jump. It's not a huge leap. No. Yeah, exactly. You just exactly. need an animal to get into court and have standing to yeah. enforce those rights, and that yeah. breaks down that barrier. Yeah. yeah, and they're an entity capable of um, you know, bearing interests. And so, you know, that's, that's it. Like, that's kind of all you need. Yeah, the law already um, accepts that they have interests. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Angela, so much for this interesting, enlightening conversation. Oh, yeah. was... Thanks for suggesting it, and it was very fun doing it. It was a pleasure. Hope to have you back again soon. Absolutely, anytime. And just a quick postscript to Angela's interview she has very generously offered Paw and Order listeners 20% off of the price of her new book if you order through Cambridge University Press. So you can find the link in the show notes, and you're going to want to use the discount code AFERNANDEZ2018. Enjoy. Heroes and Zeros. All right, it is time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. All right, our hero today is an easy one. Our hero is Victoria Kavinsky, who organized our Edmonton holiday party for us. She did a great job volunteering in this capacity. Victoria is a lawyer in a firm in Edmonton, strong interest in animal law. One of your former t- students, nope. too. Oh, no. Okay, I thought so, but I was, guess I was wrong. 
Uh, but she really pulled it off. She pulled off an incredible event. Um, just really self-sufficient and made it happen. So, Victoria, thank you. Look, I want to say a couple of words. Obviously, I got to work with Victoria on this holiday party, and uh, I'm very excited to uh, help name her as our hero of this episode because she really deserves it. She came on out. Uh, Victoria is a young lawyer. She's incredibly busy at her firm, and she went out and she wrangled this party together mostly on her own, and uh, I think that's an incredible thing. And I want to make a larger point about this because uh, I know Camille will echo this idea that uh, the number of emails or uh, uh, contacts I get from young lawyers, young law students saying, what can I do to help is through the roof. And um, essentially, you know, my concern about it's great, by the way, of course, we want people who want to help. But my concern often is that what they want is a ready-made project that we package together for them so that they can then do a specified task and just put that together. And that is not the way this movement works. We need people who are self-sufficient and coming forward, like Victoria, who says, I want to do this. And I suggested a holiday party, and she absolutely ran with it and has inserted herself into our organization in a way that's really powerful and we can't wait to work with her in future. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Frankly, we just don't have the capacity to use volunteers to the extent that we want to. And when someone comes along who's just prepared to go above and beyond like this, it is amazing. Yeah, you come to us with something and we can support you much easier than we coming to you with something so you can support us. I know that sounds backwards, but that's really what we need. And it is uh, uh, really wonderful to work with you. So thanks a lot, um, Victoria. And just let me say my own words in case he's actually listening because he said he would. He's not our hero. But uh, Camille mentioned um, my good friend and colleague, Dino Batos, who helped put uh, this together. We wouldn't have been able to do it without the venue, uh, our wonderful law office that I get to work in. So thanks so much, Dino, for your help in uh, making this possible. Thank you, Dino. And for every hero, oh boy, this is the part I've been bubbling up for all day. So excited. It's so exciting. For every hero, we have a very special zero. I, I say it's so special, Camille, because like, we really thought he was gone from our lives. I think he has been named, has he been, he's been named a hero and a zero. It, he's just, we really thought he was gone from our lives and he is back. He's back with a vengeance. Okay, our zero this week is Robert Sopa, conservative MP from Dauphin Swan River, Nipawa in Manitoba. And if you've listened to this episode, you know, even from the beginning or not from the beginning, you would have heard him mentioned before, but he's one of the main anti-animal rights voices in federal parliament. He An opposes animal everything. Animal anything. Animal anything. He, he just loves exploiting animals. Hunter, Fisher, loves that stuff, like shooting animals, likes the farmers. Bob really, likes really, his animals dead and on his plate. That's where he likes them. That's, that is there, there to feed him and his family. That is what he's looking for. And he's been honored by Trophy Hunters, the Safari Club International gave him an International Legislator of the Year award. So I guess the least we can do is give him a couple of zero awards to counterbalance that. But all right, so why... Bob was in fine form when the cetacean bill uh, came out. Let me say he, he was... Is it, it? He was opposed, let's just say. <laughs> Needless to say, he was opposed. And, and I guess the other funny thing about this, and, and the reason we're so pleased that he's made a reappearance, is because he's retiring after this election or after this parliament ends. He's not running again. So we thought he was just like over, but <laughs> this is just a delight that we get to talk about him again. So he is opposed to Bill S203 because it is fundamentally flawed. And he talks about how it has nothing to do with environmental conservation and the conservation of whales or the environment. And it's like, yeah, no, it doesn't. This is about rights for cetaceans. This is about moving towards giving rights for these sentient beings. It is an emotional reaction to a problem that simply 
does not exist. God, yeah. Bob, I just love you. Yeah. It's just it's just fantastic. Of course it doesn't exist, because according to Bob, uh, animals are there for Bob's use. So as long as there are enough of them around to share, and we can share them in various places, it's all good, right? It doesn't matter. There is no problem, because who the hell cares about these types of things? The slippery slope, Bob says, is alive and well. What I love about Bob's uh, particular you know, lack of logic in his discussion is he's concerned about the slippery slope. But what's interesting is he's not actually concerned of any aspect of the slippery slope. It's essentially any push will lead to Bob not being able to feed his family or medical research. He doesn't care how cruel it is, what the animal is. He's just fundamentally opposed. As long as there are enough cetaceans for everybody to watch and or eat, who knows? I'm sorry, I probably shouldn't attribute that he wants to hunt them, but I mean, who knows? Who knows where it will lead? We may get rid of rodeos or medical research. Please. Yeah, please. But, you know, I feel like he really does get us. He's like correctly identified that this is something that activists are very keen on, very excited about, and that the public is excited about, too. And he's sort of like imputing some nefarious uh, agenda to those who are advocating on behalf of animals because they've chosen something that the public supports. And it's like, really, that you find that problematic, that democracy is unfolding as it's supposed to people want a bill and it's going to be passed like I, it just blows my mind peter marine land it's employed over 50,000 people says bob and it's 56 years of successful operation Bob, you know what also employed a lot of people back in the day? <laughs> yeah, we could pull out a lot of examples from history that made people a lot I remember of money. the good old days of bull baiting back in the streets. My God, so many people were employed by bulls charging at dogs and ripping each other to shreds. It was just, those were the good old days. Bob's fighting on behalf, by the way. Bob also opposes the Kalesh industry getting rid of in Montreal. You know, it employs lots of people on the roads and streets of Montreal. So, you know, it's just tough. Uh, Marine does such good work that we should never close down. I, I, you know, what can you say to that? Well, you know what, you know what the uh, local MP for St. Catharines, which is right next to Marineland, had to say. He tweeted yesterday while this debate was going on in Parliament and said that it is time for Marineland to evolve. This is Chris Biddle, Liberal MP. Uh, you know, traditionally politicians in that area have been sort of uh, pro Marineland, and I guess because of the jobs, but that is no longer the case. Even the mayor of Niagara Falls, where Marineland is located, recognizes that it's time for the business model to evolve. And there was discussion yesterday in this debate, Peter, about Cirque du Soleil. It's an exhibition. It is a circus. It doesn't use any animals. It's not like this is impossible. Well, Bob, we're sorry we won't have you to push around much longer or to, you know, go back and forth with your wonderfully logical uh, statements like the ones you make in the house. Uh, you know, it's just going to be a shame when we don't have these days because they were, they were enjoyable for all of us. I do have a sneaking suspicion that we may get another shot at this, Peter, because we still have a cosmetics bill, we still have a shark fin bill, and we still have a bestiality bill working their way through the house. So Bob might provide us with new material. That's right, Camille, because honestly, it's a slippery slope. and we. I, but I, we shouldn't be presumptuous. I mean, I don't know exactly how Bob's going to come out on those bills. <laughs> Sorry. I we'll couldn't see. even I couldn't even say that with a straight face. I, I actually think he might support the shark fin bill because it is about conservation and he seems to care about that or at All least right. likes to say that he does. Alright. We'll I see. mean but we'll it's a slippery slope, Camille. If we start with shark fins, who knows what's next? Families will start. That's what's coming, Camille. 
All right. Well, that was uh, uh, a really that was fun. Honestly, <laughs> that sort of woke me up from my post-holiday party uh, stupor. But uh, that was great. We were really happy to be able to do an episode together. It's always a rare treat, Camille. I'm pleased you were here. I'm pleased you were in Edmonton. We want to thank all of our supporters and especially our sponsor, uh, the Grinning Goat. We should throw out a shout out to our host today, the Sweet Pea Cafe and Playhouse. If you are in Edmonton, uh, you got to come on by. Try this panna capita. All right, thanks so much, everybody. We will see you uh, next time on Paw and Order. Bye for now. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.